Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Okay, Vintage Faith, good morning. We have a few announcements. There's going to be a special business meeting, a major meeting, August 19th at 6.30. This is going to be a Q&A, and we're going to vote on Pastor Anthony as our new lead pastor. So again, that's August 19th at 6.30. Okay, we also have a retirement party for Pastor Ken. That's going to be August 21st at 6.30. That's going to be outside here at church. August 21st, 6.30. And then more exciting news, there is a new baby in Pastor Ken's family. He has a new grandson. His name is Wesley. He was born yesterday at 9.20 p.m. And then another reminder, our offering box is at the doors to the sanctuary. Can you guys guess what book the scripture reading is coming from this morning? Philippians chapter 3, 1 to 9. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that our righteousness is not our own that it's from you, that it's a gift. We thank you for the amazing news of the gospel. We thank you for the freedom and the joy that the gospel brings. And Lord, as we look at your word today, at Paul's words of just how he protected this gospel, anything that came against it, he called evil. Lord, help us as a church to grasp this in a way where we can just feel 
experience the joy that comes from knowing that our righteousness comes from Christ and not ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as uh, Evan said, we are in the book of Philippians. Uh, we got a, a few more sermons here to go through the end of the summer, probably into the fall. And today we're going to look at um, 1 to 9. And the title of the sermon is A Righteousness Not My Own. Um, Philippians 3, 1a, part, the first half of, of verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. So, so if you've been paying attention, the title of our sermon series is Finding Joy in Christ. Joy, rejoice, glad. You will find that 16 times in the book of Philippians, 16 times. It is one of the major themes that runs throughout the book, rejoicing in the Lord. But what, what does rejoicing mean? When we, culturally, when we think of rejoicing, many of us probably immediately going to, go to a place of, hey, just being happy, being emotionally happy. You might even be thinking about if you've ever been to the Dome, and watch an SU basketball game and, and they hit a buzzer beater or they, they hit a shot that puts them up when they were losing and the crowd just explodes. You might be thinking of that, that, that that is joy. But I think when we look in the Bible, we will see joy is a little different. Dane Ortland in his book um, about Jonathan Edwards says this about true joy. He says, there is no true joy that does not come from the triune God. The universe itself is the overflow of God's own intra-Trinitarian delight. The Father delighting in the Son, the Son delighting in the Father, and the Spirit being the joyous love that is expressed between the two. To be born again is to be welcomed into the fountain-like heavenly delight of intra-Trinitarian love. We are swept up into this divine love. So I know there's some mouthfuls in that quote, but the idea is when you come to faith in Christ, when you, your heart is regenerated, the Spirit comes in you to indwell, and you are now part of a Trinitarian love, the flow of love, and, and, and that is where we find our joy. And it's not always going to look like the world thinks it looks. In fact, in, in the same book, uh, Edwards said that many, of the time, many times when he was most contemplative, people would come to him and say, Jonathan, why, why are you so downcast? What's wrong with you? And he would say many of those times where he was experienced the most intense joy from God. C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea. He says, there's a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It's too good to waste on jokes. So just as we go through the sermon today, that idea of joy, it's going to come out again at the end of the sermon. It's, do you see Christ as a treasure? Does he move you? Your emotions, your will. 
Can you be moved when you sing about Christ, when you read about Christ, when you contemplate Christ? The difference between a Christian life with or without joy is like the difference between a boat being driven along by a tired oarsman or a sail full of wind. So think about that. Joy is the fuel of the Christian life. Philippians 3, 1, the second half of that verse to 2. Paul goes on, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So just hold that thought about who these people are. We'll we'll get there in in a moment. The text is going to show us who these people are. But I want to settle on this idea right now. So Paul starts with this idea of joy, and then he gets into this warning. And we see warnings all over the New Testament. They're everywhere in the New Testament. And it's, it's really, even for us today, we got to think, just because something has the label Christian on it, or it's in a, you find it in a Christian bookstore, doesn't mean that it's biblical. Some of the most popular teachers of our day are using biblical language to preach unbiblical truths. And Paul starts off and he says, out of joy, be warned. Watch out for these people, this certain group. In fact, again, all over the the New Testament, just a a grouping of these kind of scriptures. Paul says to Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. When he's talking about an elder, he says an elder must be able to give instruction and rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine. He says there'll be false teachers among you and who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Paul planted churches. He preached the gospel. But he knew after he did this that wolves would come in and and distort the gospel. And that's what's happening right here. He's calling these people dogs. He's calling them evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. These are what the Bible would call the Judaizers. And they would say, you must be circumcised. You must follow the law, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament to know Jesus. In Acts 15.1, we see see this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. The Judaizers were willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they missed the whole point. They looked at Jesus as being capped on to this glorious Old Testament temple and sacrifices and rituals, and Jesus was kind of like, he's the cherry on top of this, and that is not the Jesus that we worship. Carson says this of how the Judaizers got it wrong. He, he, he goes to the, to the contrast. This is the other side of that. 
the Old Testament scriptures anticipate his coming. They look forward to his coming. They announce his coming. But it is his coming that is the ultimate hope. In this view, although the temple in the Old Testament had many functions, one of its most important functions was in pointing to him, to Jesus, who would be the temple, that is, the supreme place of sacrifice and the supreme meeting place between God and his people. And you see, the Judaizers glorified the temple and, and the ceremonial law more than Jesus. And Paul, all throughout Scripture, is going to say, no, you're missing the point. This is all pointing to Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. Jesus says that of himself. He says, you guys, you, you don't know the Scriptures. You claim you know them, but they're all talking about me. It's all pointing to me. He is the point of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. It's all pointing to Jesus. And the Judaizers were saying, well, yeah, just add him on top. Some people today will add to the message of the gospel. They will say, well, you must believe, but you also must do, 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 this, this, and that. And others will completely take away from the glory of the gospel and just really reduce it to, hey, you just need a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's, although that's true, why, why would I need that? What, tell, I, I, there's more. There's more. There's glory to this message. There's glory to the gospel. In Galatians 1, 8 to 9, Paul says, Again, fighting against the Judaizers, fighting against the circumcision, those who are saying you must be circumcised, you must obey the law of Moses. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be be accursed. This is serious business in the New Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that he is our righteousness, that it's not our own. It's his righteousness. That is a glorious truth. And once you add a little tiny bit or take away a tiny bit, it's no longer the gospel. I would ask you this morning... Who is your Jesus? Is he the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, your redeemer? Or is he just something that you add on and add on to your life and, and, and you, you're, you're finding your own way and, and sometimes call on Jesus? Paul goes on, Philippians 3.3. 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So just sit for a moment on this. Paul is saying, these, these guys that are trying to come in and grab your attention, 
and say that you must be circumcised and you must obey the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. They're dogs, they're evil. We are the circumcision. We are the true Jews. We are the, the true people of God who worship by, spirit, by the Spirit and glory in Jesus. And he goes on to say, if you want to boast in Jewish ceremonial law, okay, let's, let's go, toe-to-toe, -to -toe. I can out-boast you. So he goes on in Philippians 3, 4-6, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So this is Paul's resume. He's going to roll out his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. So that's according to Levitical law. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's an Israelite. Some of these Judaizers might not have even been Israelites. They might have been Gentile converts brought into the fold, boasting in the fact that they were circumcised. He's saying, I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were meticulous. They held the law to the letter. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul's saying, I, I had so much zeal for Judaism that the Christians, when they came and were blaspheming, what he thought was blaspheming, I persecuted them. I hunted them down. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's saying, ceremonial law, I was blameless. I kept everything. Every, to a letter, I kept the law. <clears throat> These are the kinds of things that would fly very well in first century Judaism. They would have been very impressive. It would have given Paul immense cultural credibility, cultural currency. It would have opened doors for Paul. He knew the right people. He went to the right school. He knew the upper echelon of Jewish society. He had that. He had the connections. We, we tend to think about this in religious ways, but maybe take it out of religion for a while and just think, hey, okay, imagine going to, to Harvard and, and knowing some of those professors and, and you know, those professors, professors have connections and they have connections out into the world to get you jobs and you just have, you have currency, cultural currency. And Paul had this. We can't miss this. He was dripping in it when it came to Judaism. But he goes on and he says, but whatever gain I had, so all of this, all of this credibility, currency, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So this status, 
this, this credibility, this currency that he had that opened doors, that got Paul places, that he could have lived the rest of his life in these circles, he gladly gives it all away to follow Jesus. In the book of Galatians, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So again, we, we don't have this so much in, in our culture, but think about it. He's, he's advancing. He's moving up the ladder in, in Judaism. And he gives it all away to gain Christ. And I would ask you this morning, what are you willing to count as a loss to gain Christ? What are you willing to count as a loss to gain Christ? And I'm talking to the believer. I bet for most of us, especially my generation and, and lower, the younger people, one of the things you may fear most is losing your cultural currency. You don't want to be seen as the closed-minded, clinging to traditions, silly, idiotic, science-denying, straw man that's been built in the media and in the culture when referring to Christians, right? You don't want to be seen as that person. Tim Challies has a blog. I have, I'd recommend, there, there's an article in there, it's called A Sober Warning from the earliest Christians. He wrote it in July 2018. It's chalice.com. If, if you want the website, I can point you there. But he, he unpacks this idea that the early Christians were persecuted, but they weren't necessarily persecuted for believing in Jesus. That, that happened. He's not saying that didn't happen. But many times, they were persecuted for political reasons. See, Rome had a bunch of kingdoms within their territory. And they needed to unite all the kingdoms. And one of the ways they would unite them is they had each kingdom, each citizen had to pay homage to Caesar. And, and paying that homage was a bit of worship. They were very tolerant of other religions. There was many religions in the early first century Roman Empire. But Christians were persecuted because they refused to worship, even if it was small, the emperor. You can have your Christianity, you can sing your songs, you can do this, you can do that, but if you refuse to worship the emperor, you're going to die. You're going to die. Chalice goes on in this article. Again, I, I would recommend it. To you, and he unpacks how the unifying principle in our society is quickly becoming, and this was 2018, even more so now, two years later, it's quickly becoming tolerance. You can have any God that you want, you can worship how you want to worship, but don't tell me 
that this isn't okay, or that isn't okay. You can worship your Jesus. You go ahead. Just don't tell me, don't, don't say that homosexuality is, is not okay. Don't, don't say it. Don't say that Jesus is the only way. There's many other religions out there. You're being intolerant now. Chalice puts it like this. He says, the unifying principle that has risen to the top is tolerance. A new kind of tolerance centered around modern sexual ethics and mores. We are considered tolerant only when we advocate and celebrate new understandings of marriage, sexuality, and gender. Those who refuse to celebrate what they believe God forbids are seen as disloyal to the unifying principle of society. They are seen to be hindering rather than helping the strength and growth of this great new empire. People don't care if we worship Jesus. There's plenty of liberal churches out there worshiping Jesus that are completely welcomed into the fold of culture. They care if we take a stand where God takes a stand. And I would submit to you, and we're frame this in the, 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 the context of joy, that your joy will be significantly lessened and weakened if you nod to the cultural gods of our day. You can't give your nod to those gods and the God of the Bible and have the kind of joy that Paul is talking about when he talks about joy and suffering. That's the kind of joy wholeheartedly giving your everything to Christ and willing to suffer the consequences for it. Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You, for either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. That, you can't serve the God of tolerance in our culture and the God of the Bible. You can't do it. I'm not saying you can't know Jesus. I'm saying you can't serve him by conceding in these areas. So the question that I have for, for all of us this, this morning, are we willing to count that, that cultural currency, as loss for the sake of gaining Christ? We all have to ask ourselves that question. Are we willing? Paul goes on in Philippians 3, 9, the second half of 9. He says, not having a righteousness of my own. So, so the righteousness of his own was all the things that he did in Judaism. And he's saying, nope, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm gaining Christ now, not having a righteousness of my own. It comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Deep down, every human being and all of us in this room, we know that something is not quite right in us. 
All of us know that. We have that feeling. You have it from as long as you can remember. We know that we could be better than we are. We know we fall short, even of our own standard. Forget for a moment of, of, of God's standard. We know we fall short of our standard. We know deep down that we have hypocritical thoughts. No one in this room, no one, and, and if you say you do, we, we can talk, but nobody would want their thoughts just from this morning put up on the screen for all of us to see. <laughs> right? We're, we, we have a certain nature in us that, that is hypocritical. We're going to be one way, but we feel another way, and we, we have a war in our, in our heart and our mind. We know we fall short. And we seek like Adam and Eve in the garden with the fig leaves after they, they sin and, they, and, and the, the fall happens. They seek to cover up their nakedness with, with fig leaves. And we do that when, with righteousness. We know we're unrighteous and, and it, we seek to, to, to do or cover it up and act a certain way to cover up the fact that we know there's something deep down that's just off. Madonna has a quote that captures this in a, in a pretty unique way. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get another stage and think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Does this resonate with you in any way? This is a desire to put on a righteousness that is not our own. Tim Keller talks about the idea of righteousness. He says, it's a validating performance record which opens doors. A validating performance record which opens doors. Everybody is wrestling and working for validation, worth. We want to justify our existence and we deeply feel the unrighteousness in us. But there's good news. Because that struggle does not have to be. One of the most glorious truths in the Bible is that our righteousness isn't our own. If it's our own, we're condemned. We're we're, we know it. Our, 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 our minds and our, everything in us knows that we're not righteous. 
Philippians 3.9, again, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Whose righteousness is it? This is Jesus's. This is Christ's righteousness, not ours. We always, uh, we do this, this kind of drill with our kids. We sit them down at the table, and if we're talking Bible or talking about God, we, we ask this question, and we continue to ask it. If you're standing in front of the, the gates of heaven, and they ask, someone asks, why should we let you in? What's your answer? And you know, over the years, that, so that, that answer changes, and, and it's like, no, you're, you're missing it. Like, why should, why? Because of Jesus. His righteousness, not mine. His. Martin Luther says of this righteousness, he said, it is the righteousness of another instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies through faith. This is Jesus' record imputed to us. This is the, the man who was made in the image of the invisible God, not made, but he is the image of the invisible God, the one whom all things were created through, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus. All things are being held together by Jesus. Your breath, your heartbeat, the very reason there's not complete chaos in this room right now, that there's order, it's because Jesus is holding it all together. The universe is held together by Jesus, the creator of sunsets, oceans, mountains. And it is this God who humbled himself, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he became obedient to the point of death. Even the humiliating death of a Roman cross and the wrath of God was poured out on him so we could be righteous and walk in freedom and newness of life and no longer be under condemnation. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cost is really no cost at all. It's a perceived cost. We think that, that this credibility matters. I don't know what you think in your world matters, what you're kind of like, ah, I hear you, but I don't want to necessarily lose that. I don't want to be seen as that. We, we all probably have different things. But it's really no loss because you gain Christ. You gain him. What do you boast in? 
Is it in Jesus or is it in something you've done or you do? And I would just say, why not give your, your life to him? Give it all to him. Trust him. There's always more of ourselves that we can give, right? We're, we're, we're living sacrifices. We can tend to run away from the altar. God's calling us to do something, and, and we may take a few steps and then take a few steps back and, and run. What is God calling you to do? How can you give more of yourself? How can you count more of your life as loss to gain him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we confess that there is just so much of ourselves that we don't want to count as loss. There's so much that we're unwilling to give you. And Lord, we, we just ask that you empower us as a body of believers to, to give of ourselves more, to not be afraid of what the world around us is going to say if we stand for you. Lord, I pray for, for those of us who have conceded on things in your word that are just abundantly clear because they don't want to lose that cultural currency. I pray for those people that they can just walk away from that and, and see it in your word and see it clearly and just say, God, you know best. The culture doesn't know best. The time doesn't know best. You know best. Christ is all in all. We love you, Jesus. Help us to see you as that Yahweh, the, the Son of God, Help us to see you for who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.